tech people are very not a lot of them are awkward but like you know they're in tech for that reason because mm-hmm. they don't have to be doing that and now all of a sudden everyone is like a public speaker and everyone is doing all of these like it's becoming a very um what's the word that i'm looking for not front facing is that what it is yeah they're facing forward they're facing the public it's the era of personal branding still yes still i think it's yeah still maybe i say that with a little bit of disappointment Mm -hmm. in that i wish that it could evolve beyond what someone's outer shell of a presence looks like and that them having internet clout is more important than being a good person or doing (laughs) right by people but (laughs) such is life i'm going to i never introduced you so i'm going to do that great now okay nicole tremaglio is that your last name I wrote that you're a pop culture commentator, nostalgia correspondent, um, digital anthropology enthusiast. Perfect. All of those things are correct. Um, So I, and we were talking about this earlier, how you have come from background in fashion. Mm -hmm. Um, So I wanted to first start off with like your trajectory through that and how you got to doing what you're doing now which Mm -hmm. I guess I don't know like the full breadth of everything that you do now I know that you have a podcast and Mm. you have like you write Mm -hmm. I write my newsletter um so most recently I worked as a marketing director at a web3 entertainment studio um it was called mythos studios it was super small it was started by the guy who uh founded or like was one of the big execs at marvel studios so they have money it was, although he wasn't involved in the day-to-day, it was co-founded by Scooter Braun. Whoa. And so when I was a <laughs> BTS digital ethnographer, which I feel like now that I hang out with more creative people, I get these, this is when naming is a very helpful thing. Mm-hmm. I was like, damn, I was really a digital ethnographer. Yeah. I was not just a TikToker, <laughs> you know? So I was really immersed in that community and I saw an opening when they first opened the Hybe office in LA. I yeah. saw a marketing position open and I'm like, what if I worked for BTS? Oh yeah. my God, this would be so crazy. I applied on LinkedIn. They looked at my resume. They did not respond. However, the company that I work for, because it was so small, it didn't have its own and it was born during the pandemic. Yeah. It didn't have its own office. And so since Mr. Braun was one of the guys, he was like, oh, just come to my office. So when I would go out, I worked remotely, but I would go to L.A. maybe once a month or so. And when I would go out there to work, it would be in Hybe's office. Oh my God, no way. So I'm like, the fact that, good thing they didn't find my TikTok because they would not have let me, like security would not have let me in if they knew That's crazy. who I was. So was yeah. Scooter there? Did you never see him? saw him. I never saw anybody famous. I'm trying to think. But you know, it was funny. I got laid off the same day that um, Ariana and... Demi, like all the people were like, we're dropping Scooter. That was recently, wasn't it? Yeah, it was at the end of August. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I was like, huh. Yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you girls. Yeah. I I, I wasn't going to say it first. Yeah, I'm standing with you guys. And I'm so glad I took all of those seltzers for free out of his refrigerator. 
We stand together That's, on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They already did my girl, um, uh, Taylor Dirty, but mm-hmm. I'm I'm going down with her. The Spotify wrapped where it's like you spent five hundred twenty five thousand six hundred minutes denying what a Swifty you are, and I'm like, I certainly did. Was she your number one? Yeah, she was. And I was only in the top maybe 12% or something. I mean, I feel like that's a rough, that's a tough competition. Yes. And so 12% number one artist. I'm like, see, I'm not even that invested in her. I think for me, I love singing and mm-hmm. I live by myself, so I am singing, singing and dancing. Are like, you singing along to music or acapella? <laughs> usually along to music. Okay. okay, it's not that I don't like acapella, but my sister always tries to put on like Straight No Chaser or Pentatonics Christmas, and mm. I'm like, I don't like mm. acapella Christmas music. Same. And then she, we recently rewatched the first two Pitch Perfects. Oh yeah. And I, <laughs> the first time when she was like, oh, let's rewatch Pitch Perfect. I'm like, oh, I hate this movie. It's so stupid. And then two seconds after it starts, I am singing a lot. And I'm like, you got me. Cause I can't resist singing to stuff. So yeah. the reason I listened to so much Taylor Swift is because unlike Celine Dion and Mariah Carey, I can't sing that for a prolonged period of time without yeah. my voice literally hurting. Yeah. Whereas Taylor Swift is and very singalongable. Very singalongable. My ex-boyfriend Simon, he was I mean, he was just like a regular guy, but he was really into uh, Pitch Perfect and Taylor Swift, like 1989 era. Yeah. I would like visit him at work all the time and he was always playing those two things. And I was like, this is so odd. But that's a really good point. They're both very sing-alongable. I had never listened to 1989 or Speak Now all the way through. I've still never listened to Speak Now all the way through. Yeah, I have with Taylor's version, hence why I racked up so many minutes so of Taylor. You, you weren't a Taylor, a, a, a Swifty back in the day, like 2010? No, I was yeah. not. I That's thought she was wicked corny. Yeah, the yeah. country era, I was like, this is like, I mean, some of the songs I think are f- actually funny because mm. they're just so mm. silly. <laughs> and the fact that she's from like Pennsylvania yeah. or whatever <laughs> also makes it funny. Um... But yeah, it wasn't until I became friends. My best friend was like super, super basic. And I don't say that in a negative way. It's just like she loves Taylor Swift and skinny vanilla lattes. Mm -hmm. And like, that's great. And so she kind of turned me on to Taylor Swift. And this was the Red era. And I really loved Red. And then I did end up actually going to her reputation tour no and she was just a great entertainer she is Even but the um reputation era yeah so pretty garbage yeah i'm like <laughs> i'm not a swifty and also i don't relate to her lyrics at all like i don't feel i don't feel like she represents me in any way and she is so popular because she represents so many people in different ways mm-hmm. But yeah, I'd never listened to the songs all the way through, but sometimes they're just catchy and I want to sing them. And so really no one can stop me. <laughs> I had the same thing with Lana. Um, Lana is my number one on Spotify Wrapped mm. every year. And I thought Lana Del Rey was like so corny and so awful in 2012. And now I think once Norman fucking Rockwell came out, which was when everyone 
was really into Lana Del Rey. But ever since then, I'm like, I fucking love this woman. I would die for this woman. She's incredible. But this is a very good segue into the nostalgia of particularly 2012 um, Lana Del Rey, Tumblr core, also the 1975 huge right now. Okay. So were you on Tumblr in this era? I was not very much. I think my handle was called Nicole likes it. Okay. And I remember my sister was on Tumblr too, but that was at a time where I had just gotten out of college and she was still in college and we didn't know that each other had Tumblrs. And I'm like, what were we both on like burner accounts or something? <laughs> like, I mean, it, it could be know? pretty private spaces, I feel. It felt private. I don't remember a lot about my Tumblr experience because I was definitely more of a MySpace person. Okay. That yeah. was, yes, that, that was, was way before my time. Yes. It was, it, I mean, what a time to be alive. I really loved that era and the idea of getting to be yourself via a new medium. Mm-hmm. It was really the, precursor to the the presentation of the self which was then even before this curation of the self that we see on social media now but with tumblr and with lana del rey i listened to born to die like so many times it was concerning (laughs) and i I don't want to say I related to the music because I didn't date someone much older than me until after that album came out. Um, But even like listening to Dark Paradise in particular was a song that I had dated someone in college who struggled with addiction. And I heard that song and we were still friends at that point, but that song made me think, wow, what if he died? Yeah. What if he died? And would I play this song to help make me feel better? Mm-hmm. Am I already trying to emotionally process something that hasn't happened, but something that I know is out of my control? Mm-hmm. And so I think that with Lana creating these picturesque landscapes where you can kind of insert yourself or you can project whatever kind of narrative that you want because her songs aren't super literal no yeah it was just an interesting time and like I said I had just graduated from college in 2012 so I was in this weird in-between space where I'm like okay what happens now I had been promoted at the job that I worked at in college which was at a Michael Kors store in suburban Massachusetts (laughs) and so I had the same life basically I was still partying and selling handbags and I'm like is life supposed to be different is Mm. it supposed to be better and I've always been a super emo person and I think that the melodrama I'm a huge Mm. Celine fan (laughs) huge Mariah fan um She has kind of like this melancholic melodrama Mm -hmm. and that's something very intoxicating as a young person when you feel like you're old enough to try to decide what you want to do with your life but still young enough where you don't actually have to. That's true. It seemed very aspirational in a way especially to I don't know from what I could see in the age that I was and the age of the people who I was seeing online, 
because we were all still in high school. Um, but like maybe we had cars and we were getting boyfriends and all of a sudden it's like, oh, I'm so wrapped up in this like dark, in the darkness of life and mm-hmm. being a woman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even though not really, but it just started to feel like that. And you're right. It was like, you know how teenagers, they want to be grownups. They want to be like cool and they want to like be responsible for themselves and they want to prove to themselves and other people that they are mature enough. And I think it that it was aspirational in that way. Um, but Lana was like, she was really surfacing an aesthetic that already existed, right? Like everyone was kind of familiar with this. And obviously she's borrowing from like Priscilla, from Marilyn, all these different people. Um, but it really seemed to kind of solidify it in this way that hasn't really left the zeitgeist since, I don't think. Maybe it's changed, but something that this makes me think of is how I can't tell when a trend has gone out of the zeitgeist and come back in, or if it's just always kind of latently there. Mm -hmm. What is your take on that? I personally feel like it's the latter. There's this latency Mm. in that something can be tapped at any time and come back into the consciousness of people. It's not that it wasn't there. Yeah. It's just that we were focused on something else and something was in our vision more closely or more clearly. And so you'll see the same kind of themes repeated over time. I mean, now it's the past 75 years, 100 years. We're talking about Priscilla and Marilyn. These are people who have... Um, the the peak of their popularity was it's like double nostalgia, which is the word that I, I think it's a more fun word than animoia to mm-hmm. describe. It's not nostalgia. People keep using nostalgia as a name for everything. And it's really a misnomer because I cannot have nostalgia for Priscilla. I was exactly. not there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I can have nostalgia for it. And so Marilyn and Priscilla are so long ago, the peak of their popularity, that it's like it becomes like inception where it mm-hmm. is another meta layer it's like telephone because you're like Mm -hmm. trying to interpret the reading that you've gotten from what you've seen online from the people who are actually there to experience it (laughs) yeah and then as the generations go on there can even be a second layer of something and what I always think of I think a prominent example of this is what people call kind of the y2k aesthetic of now Mm -hmm. and I think about and granted, I talk about this like every day of my life, but the Consumer Aesthetics Research Institute has a trend. They name all of these aesthetic trends and assign dates to them. And these have been, we can call it used or we can call it exploited on TikTok, which I think feeds into the idea of naming every single trend aesthetic thing that happens. But anyway, my favorite one was called Groovival. Okay. And it's kind of like a groovy revival. So this is the nostalgia for the 1970s from the vantage point of the 1990s. Mm-hmm. So I was a kid in elementary school in the 90s. My American Girl doll had a hippie outfit. I was a hippie for Halloween. I had a hippie-themed birthday party. Right. And I wore tie-dye shirts and platform shoes and bell-bottom jeans. And now... 
it's like even that was an entire trend cycle ago, yeah. let alone the original that my mom lived through. And that's when like the costume of it was invented, right? The costume of like absolutely being the first revival of something is when it becomes parodied mm. in that way. And it's, I don't want to say it's a mockery. It absolutely can be, but it's like a mockery of itself. It becomes meta, it becomes self-referential uh, because whoever is reviving this, whether it's the media, whether it's fashion companies, like whatever form these trends revive and come back as, it's because you're cherry picking particular elements from the original cultural zeitgeist without the sociopolitical implications and you're decontextualizing it pretty much like yeah. I don't know anything about the oil crisis of 1978 yeah, like yeah. I don't know about any of that I don't know about and especially as a little kid in the 90s I didn't know about all of the sociopolitical movements of the 1960s and 70s and and they were huge. Mm -hmm. And if you lived through that, there's no way that you don't have an inherent understanding. So the fact that I could just go and get a costume of it is kind of hilarious. Yeah, yeah. And so our parents, maybe they were frustrated by that. They said, first of all, how dare you? You have, you have no idea what it was like back then. Mm -hmm. Or they... I feel like every generation has to grapple with this, but it's just more obvious with the presence of the internet. Whenever generations start to age in that way and they finally become old enough to see the completion of a trend cycle of about 20 years, they're like, I'm getting old. Yeah. And my generation is not the focal point of youth culture or of cultural conversation anymore that makes me feel irrelevant that makes me feel aged out that mm -hmm. makes me feel disappointed and that makes me terrified of fading into obsolescence yeah. and the same way you see with the diffusion of innovations the way that aesthetics the way that trends follow this pattern I think people subscribe to that too in trying to make meaning of their lives and so yeah, now people are like, oh, you can't just pick whatever you want from the 90s and call it this. Or this is the McBling aesthetic and this is the Y2K yeah, aesthetic. Yeah. And they're totally different. And by the way, Y2K is actually early to mid 90s. It's not even the and my fashion historian self, like I went to school for fashion. I literally had to study these things and I was tested on these things. Yeah. So the fact that democratization of literally everything has happened based on the internet, whether it's democratization of access to celebrities, to one another, to access to information. Now everybody's a trend forecaster. Mm -hmm. Now everybody is a public speaker. Now everybody is a this, that, and the other thing. So putting on my fashion historian hat on, I'm like, yeah, it is kind of bullshit that everybody can just pick these things apart and build entire platforms for themselves without having the traditional authority behind it. Right. But I think that's the battle too, where it's like undoing 
what I had learned as a millennial from baby boomer generation parents of this idea of meritocracy, where if you go to college Mm -hmm. and you get a good job in your field and you work really hard, then things will happen for you. And due to the timeline of what happened with my generation, that didn't happen for a lot of people. And I think for me, what became tough too is like, okay, if I no longer subscribe to what society wants for me, I don't find climbing up the corporate ladder particularly interesting or what I am meant to do with my life, Mm -hmm. then what am I supposed to do and who am I supposed to be? And I read a very interesting article about aesthetics recently, and it was called Our New Aesthetic Reality by Paula Luengo for Haloscope. And the point she makes here is that now we chase after fleeting aesthetics in the hopes that one day simply looking the part will be enough. And my favorite part of it was a graphic that's included with the article. It's so funny. It is a black and white picture with you know high fashion-esque images in the back. And mm-hmm. then you see two separate lines that look like text bubbles, text message bubbles, one gray and one blue. And they're interlocked in a swirling pattern. And so the first person, let's just say they're the gray text bubble. It says, hi, can I get blueberry milk nails with a Haley Bieber donut glaze? Also a coquette kind of downtown girl top that Kat Stratford would wear, but really Kate Moss model off duty at Glastonbury in the mud indie sleeves with a waist belt. Very Y2K. Thanks. (laughs) And then the blue bubble is like, Sure, do you also want a Dalette Bambi Foncore Tradcath post-ironic camo Heaven by Marc Jacobs thing with a Vivian Westwood necklace kind of vibe? I can also throw in a Tomato Girl Summer underlay and Carol's, by the way, but it, like it's totally your call. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God. Precisely. I Precisely. <laughs> I'm way too online. And yeah. this is the fashion girl version of Otherworld podcast has that bumper sticker where it's like, don't talk to me until I've had my kombucha, matcha, bone broth, hot yoga, affirmations, coconut oil, ice bath, sun gazing, bee pollen, tai chi. Like it goes through all these things. And I was very much in like the girl boss, high end boutique fitness and wellness space in New York in the 2010s as a 20 something. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's very interesting. Even today I was looking up on Google maps just at places in Brooklyn. And I'm like, oh my God, my favorite gentrified metaphysical supply store has closed. <laughs> oh no. Oh no. But it's like, the, <laughs> like that's even, that's the best way to describe it. Yeah. It's so funny how that internet, that internet framing and internet native contextualization, the chronically online community frames these things and expresses these things. I know, like, it's hard to get out of this online uh, perspective that I have. And it's really, when I try to think about stuff like this objectively, I just have to accept, like, oh, I don't fucking know. I have no idea what, like, if monoculture even exists or if my bias is correct that, like, there's so many more micro trends, but they seem more evenly, um, like, attended to or, like, joined. Um, I don't even know what's at the forefront of culture right now. I don't 
really know what are like the uh, dominant trends happening right now. And maybe it's just easier looking back in the past of like now we have pulled those out and those are like the dominant things of every decade versus now when I'm thinking about 2010s, like the difference between early 2010s and late 2010s, they seem like two different, um, like not even decades, but just like periods of times or eras in and of themselves that are so completely distinct from one another. But is that just because I'm too close to them? It's very interesting because I literally never thought I could ever summon any nostalgia for the 2010s <laughs> whatsoever. The 2010s were a very hard time. It was a dark time. It was a dark time. Yeah. And I have a theory. It's called the 1990 theory because that was the year that I was born. Okay. And so not to make it, it about me specifically not that the world revolves around me specifically however I think it's very interesting because my decades of life align with the calendar decades so it's like right. all of the 2010s that was my 20s mm-hmm. all of the 2000s that was my teen years and there are various pop culture references that also contribute to the validity of my theory for example my last month of being 22 years old was when 22 by taylor swift came out wow things like that where i'm like (laughs) okay why did that song come out if it's not specifically speaking to me Mm -hmm. so now it's funny when you go on the internet and people are like oh 22 i love that song when i was in kindergarten (laughs) like oh well you, you know what? Maybe you are younger than me, but I was 22 when 22 came out. I think that's really special. Yeah. And then also something that I find very interesting in this theory as well is that when I graduated from high school, college, actually middle school, high school, and college, they were all election years. Whoa. And so that's it crazy. very much, like for me, the difference between, and even... um. Even in 2001, when it wasn't a different presidency, but like the world was changed forever. America was changed forever. So it's like 2001 to 2004, that's middle school for me. That's a very distinct time. 2004 to uh, 2008, and then leading up to the recession and financial crisis, that was high school for me. And then the Obama era, that was college for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And then... I guess Obama part two was that was a clean break as well, where I moved from Boston to New York. So then my New York era started in 2014. And yeah, so it's very interesting to see how the cultural zeitgeist shifts with all different kind of sociopolitical and cultural happenings do you think that things are still changing for your generation based on is is culture and trends still being shaped by your generation to an extent because these corporations are now being run by people in my generation very true so you think that they're self-serving or are they trying desperately to understand the younger generations (laughs) i do think that it's more so the latter i think that if it's the former it's because people who are older try to pull the seniority card Mm -hmm. figuratively Mm -hmm. and they tend to have lived experiences as you get older it kind of is confirmation bias right okay clearly if I'm the president of a company I have 
I have fulfilled my duty as a hardworking millennial who's not entitled. Yeah. See, I proved all of you wrong. I'm not entitled. I have work-life balance. I, I sometimes get a half day on Fridays. See, it's like when you're young, you're trying to prove everyone wrong. And then when you get older, you try to just search for evidence that you were in fact able to live up to the promises of your generation. Mm-hmm. And I think that work-life balance was the millennials crusade. And some of us girl bossed a little too close to the sun. Far too close. Far too close. <laughs> but I do think it's very interesting to see Gen Z's crusade of sustainability mm-hmm. and the it just always being at odds with the hyper acceleration of trends in the internet because it's like, okay, yeah, it sounds great if we were to save the world or whatever. And you have to remember too, these crusades are just a recycling of whatever the parents crusade was. Mm -hmm. So for boomers, it was like, yeah, women in the workplace, like eighties, cocaine, money, (laughs) shoulder pads, hairspray, metal band or you know not metal bands I mean metal hair metal bands of the 80s but like yeah, yeah, yeah. you know it was all about work and it was all about money and so for millennials it was all about work and it was all about money and so for gen x it was like okay it's all about I don't want to say greenwashing but it was basically like where you saw this shift in power of like okay we're going to put the responsibility into the hands of the citizens to make this world a better place, Mm. not by actually challenging any of these power structures because boomers didn't care about that because the structures and the systems at play were serving them and making them a lot of money, which is why I should have been not born yet. I should have been buying a house in the 80s instead. Um, But anyway, so Gen X and not wanting to sell out. And of course, that's the crusade that's like the stereotype of what that generation was concerned about. Mm -hmm. But you see the same thing with Gen Z where it's like, yeah, circular economy, thrifting, this and that. But then at the end of the day, it's like, so then why is Sheehan about to IPO for $9 billion? I know, I don't get that. And that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about where like I can't tell, um, like none of these things seem like they're in the monoculture because uh, you see – huge sustainability campaigns going on with younger generations as something that they care a lot about, but like obviously not, not universally, not even in the majority. I think it's very interesting being an online person because it's harder and harder to tell as you were saying about, is there a monoculture? Is there not? Mm -hmm. Of course now there's not any more in terms of, if you were to compare it to how it was in the 90s, yeah. for example. But fast fashion is easy and maintaining the status quo takes less friction than if you were actually going to change something. And often young people are insulated from the quote real world, whether by their parents or just due to the fact that they're on their parents' health insurance, they're not paying taxes, whatever. Even if they have exposure to the literal terrors of the world on a daily basis, especially in America, there's just still a level of like, if you are a young person or a child, I suppose, a teenager, 
you just don't have to deal with certain things. Yeah. And so um, the fashion industry, similar to media or any institution set up this way, it used to just be more gate kept than it is now. And so I like to think of now the trend cycle as like a paintball. And so (laughs) it comes out and it is just at a speed and it's increasing in velocity. And now I would say in parallel with the 2020s and the explosion of TikTok, it just went splat. Like the paintball was this thing and it started moving so fast and it kept seeming like it got bigger and bigger as it got closer and closer. And then it just went splat. And now there's paint everywhere. And what's the paint trends or culture or what? Yeah, all of it, because it's what people want it to be. And because there's not a monoculture in the same way, it's whatever you see. Like, Mm -hmm. it's whatever your algorithm tells you what to see. It's the confirmation bias of always being served. It's what you want to see. Yeah. But it's what the platform also wants you to see. And so there are these huge silos and echo chambers. And the more online I am, the more real the online world feels and the more obvious it is to me that the two entities, your physical life and your digital life are fully integrated. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, the online world feels more surreal as well. It feels weirder than ever when I talk to a not chronically online person. (laughs) I'm like, holy, okay, the best example of this is, so speaking of, picture it it's 2017 I'm living in Soho in Manhattan New York New York City baby I work in the fashion industry what am I wearing I am wearing a leopard print midi skirt of course of course I am this is the look you cannot walk down Houston Street without seeing like eight of these skirts the what's it called realization par it it was that leopard midi skirt. Have you seen the one? I don't know if I've seen that exact one. If you show me, I'm sure I will be like, absolutely. I mean, but it's like a, it's a, it's a leopard print midi skirt. It so. became widely ubiquitous where it's like, you could get it at Madewell. You could get it at yes. probably Walmart, to be honest with you. And everyone was wearing this skirt. You could not, I, I had one from Alice and Olivia and I wore it until it unraveled. I saw a tweet once that was like, I'm pretty sure that this skirt caused the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> that is so true. I know. But that's the thing. You, you can't walk outside. You can't go on the subway. Nowhere is safe mm-hmm. from these skirts. Ev- they're everywhere. And I'm a part of the problem. <laughs> and that's the thing about working in the fashion industry is like you are a part of the problem. But then again, about putting the the onus on me instead of on corporations and things like that. It's like I had to pay my bills somehow. Yeah. So anywho, the point is that these skirts, in my mind, chokehold, absolute chokehold on everyone. Yeah. Then sometimes I'll do polls in my Instagram story mm-hmm. just, just to see how the people are doing. Everyone always has an opinion about these things. And I did a poll talking about this skirt. And someone was like, what are you talking about? And I was like, how old were they? No, my age. Oh, really? And I was like, what are you, wait, what are you talking about <laughs> when you say, what am I talking about? Yeah, yeah. 
they they just didn't live in New York. Strange. So I was yeah. like, no, there, <laughs> there's no way that the cheetah print midi skirt that caused the pandemic is a New York City psyop. Yeah, yeah. There's no way. And yet, like, I couldn't believe, like, my bubble was just popped. Yeah. I couldn't believe it because especially here where everyone is so driven by the pursuit of their desires, whether that is art, whether it's beauty, whether it's excess, whatever you came to New York for, or if you're from here, what you like telling people that you're from New York about, like whatever your thing is, people come here. And when that desire to consume and to express is so intense you do forget that life exists elsewhere i mean also with the in the age of the internet i feel like the whole no the whole of north america maybe is like so not globalized but like when i was in middle school i had no idea what other what other kids in middle school or high school in America were wearing or doing or saying I had, I kind of had no clue. Um, and now I feel like it must be much more similar all across the board. So I always assume now when there's a trend, even if it's something that I'm seeing a lot in New York, if it's big enough that like it's really palpable and people are taking notice of it and like talking about it, it's probably going on elsewhere. But again, I don't know. That's a really interesting point that you make because when I was in middle school, that was when we still had the ubiquity of print magazines. Right. So it's like I would know what was popular in all across America. I think also it's like I'm from the tri-state area. I'm not from middle America where there's like one stoplight and a mall is a half an hour away. Mm -hmm. I could get to New York City easily. I could get access to these things. But anyway... I, what I think is interesting about it is that in middle school, especially it's this time where you're going through puberty and you feel like you're the only person that this has ever happened to. And you are looking so desperately to fit in with other people. You are praying that people don't find you out as othered. You just want to be quote normal, or you just want to remain isolated in your youth enough to prove that maybe I'm not normal and Mm -hmm. and that kind of whole gateway into teenage rebellion that's part of it too but I can't imagine being in middle school fully on the internet and not knowing at a time where it's so critical or maybe maybe it's not as critical anymore maybe it just was during my time to establish that sense of normalcy and consistency as you're trying to find out who you are Mm -hmm. um I don't know why this point just came into my head and it ties in directly with what we were talking about earlier with like losing the reference point um because me growing up in absolutely nowhere or it, it was a place that was absolutely not New York so I had no I didn't know about fashion I didn't know about like pretty much anything we didn't even have a Zara or an H&M or anything and I remember when I first started dating Ruby, this was maybe like three or four years ago, um, he put on a Rick Owens cowl neck top 
And to me, I had only ever seen the fast fashion cowl neck. So like it probably came out on the runways and then it started getting knocked off, knocked off, knocked off. And that was what I was exposed to. So now when I see someone wearing a Rick Owens cowl neck, I don't know that that's the original reference. I'm like, why would you be wearing something that was like I was buying in um, in like stitches in in 2011, you know, like whatever fast fashion store I was going to Urban Planet or whatever. And I have no clue. And I that is still happening to me a lot where I do not know the reference points. I only was exposed to the knockoffs. That's very interesting. I think a lot about dupe culture. Yeah. And how that has evolved, because when I was in high school, I had a fake, <laughs> not diamond, obviously, <laughs> like cubic zirconia Chanel logo necklace. I also had a fake Chanel logo <laughs> necklace. <laughs> it's a rite of passage, pretty yeah, much. Yeah. And so obviously a real one would never be on the table. But it was just something. It was it was the McBling era. It was mm. the Ed Hardy, Von Dutch, Paris Hilton square acrylic French manicure trashy and I say that in an endearing way (laughs) time so I had also a fake Prada bag it was like green and white boucle I'm like okay business casual (laughs) like I'm very fancy going to high school I was wearing like kitten heels to school that's insane yeah I have always been insane, but it was very cute. Um, and that was of yeah. the times, honestly. That's like how people dressed. That was of the Peplum times. tops. <laughs> oh, geez. Yeah, I did a, an episode of my show. La- I mean, now it was basically a year ago talking about my 2023 predictions and trends, okay. not to be a pseudo trend forecaster, yeah. but just because I did grow up knowing a lot of these references Mm -hmm. or that are now coming back. Yeah. Or even just knowing who a designer was right? actually. Yeah. Like the Alexander McQueen scarf. Like I hadn't, I didn't know Alexander McQueen was, Mm. but I've seen those scarves everywhere. Like I was seeing them at the fast fashion stores. I had no idea that it was a reference to that. Yeah. I, that's a great example. I was recently in TJ Maxx Mm -hmm. and I used to, when I was in, fashion school I would just stick my nose right up to anything off price Mm. I'd be like ew I would never work there I would never shop there granted it's much easier when you work in the fashion industry and you're just getting a stream of free clothes for 12 years of your life that's true but now sometimes I end up at TJ Maxx (laughs) and it's really about how you wear things and how you express yourself I'm pretty sure that if I just put a paper bag on as a dress I could walk down the street and be totally content with it. But the point is I went in TJ Maxx very recently and they had Alexander McQueen scarves and I was like 2012, 2013 me is gagging right now. I am the past version of me is deceased knowing that these were in TJ Maxx 10 years later. I think so much again about the diffusion of innovations about the perceived value that we put on particular physical items and how their relevance or irrelevance is sustained over time and now seeing certain things come back right I can say yeah I think peplum's gonna come back I think that this style of shoe is gonna come back I think that 
again, because nothing ever has the same exact context that it did before. Mm -hmm. Okay. Maybe this color is going to come back or maybe it was this silhouette of shoe, but now it's going to be this silhouette of shoe, or maybe it was this kind of bag, but now it's going to be that kind of bag that still serves the same purpose. Right. It's so crazy. What do you think, um, counts as back when something is back? Cause that is confusing to me. Like for instance, and when we talk about trend forecasters, everyone is a trend forecaster now. And I find that like, they're never really wrong. Because it's so, um, there's such a wide margin of something that is a trend. Like, to me, ballet corps uh, has been coming back for the past, like, three years, very obviously to me. Mm-hmm. And I still see trend forecasters now being like, ballet corps is going to be so big in 2024. And I'm mm-hmm. like, it has been. So, like, I mean, you're just stating the obvious. Um, but it's becoming bigger and bigger all of the time. So there's a lot of people who maybe aren't even um, exposed to that yet. So what is the barrier to you or the, the like barrier to entry? This is very much a chicken or egg thing. Yeah. Because you see something on TikTok, then one cultural media outlet Mm -hmm. will write about it (laughs) and then everybody's writing about it. So then it validates that proof of concept. Yeah. But then when there's an article about, a fringe group of people in whatever neighborhood of Brooklyn who started this club where like now they only use flip phones, then you know what I mean? So it's like, okay, how can a subculture, I think about the manufacturing of subcultures a lot too, because it's like, how can you have a subculture when we don't even really have culture, when we don't have a monoculture, everybody is too busy talking about creating culture instead of actually doing it. Nobody's doing anything. They're sitting on their freaking phone scrolling TikTok. So I guess the answer is that there is no answer in that (laughs) anything anybody says, because the access to a platform and to this authority in quotations is democratized. Anytime anybody says anything, it can gain steam and especially with TikToks like kind of remix culture Mm. and just the appropriation of trends as well. Sometimes a trend can travel so far and just like a physical piece of clothing with videos, it's even easier to not know what the source of something is. Yeah, And so the source could have been, I've seen this happen before where an article is written about something about a TikTok that just blew up, but the original TikTok was from like two years ago. Yes, I see this a lot too. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of the same thing of like whenever, if my mom texts me like, have you heard that kids these days are doing this? And I'm like, first, that's not a thing. I don't know who's writing about this. And like, I don't know where they're getting this, but it's so off. Or it's something from like a year ago. And I'm like, okay, well, yeah, now my mom is hearing about it. And it's so strange because people are writing about culture more than ever, but Mm -hmm. there's older generations are still somehow getting it so wrong and Mm -hmm. even me and I'm sure that this happens to you people who try to write about culture and try to write about like trends or whatever um by the time I get the idea to write about it I feel like it's already gone Mm -hmm. but that's just because I am someone who's very online Mm -hmm. versus if I'm telling my mom or I'm, I'm speaking to a different generation or a different audience even if I was like three months down the road then it would still be fine. And even sometimes I've given up on a topic because I'm like, oh, I'm too late. And then I see other people talking about it like six months from now. And I'm like, oh, I'm just so self-defeatist, I guess. (laughs) 
why am I a cultural masochist? Like, <laughs> why am I always holding my tongue? Why am I working in a creative silo? Why am I not trusting and self-validating my ideas that I have about culture that I know have merit? I have a whole list in my phone of things that I'm going to add to my arena board. Mm -hmm. Guess what's on there now? Nothing. It's <laughs> empty. It's blank. I've, I've done zero work to take what is in my brain yeah. and put it out into the world. And so I don't, ugh, people and millennials say imposter syndrome a lot, which I don't, that word, phrase, buzzword, whatever, does not resonate with me because I've always felt on the other end of the millennial spectrum mm -hmm. of high ego and entitlement <laughs> where it's like, well, I went to school and I learned all of that. So I do know my shit mm -hmm. and it's like, okay. And, yeah. but like no one's asking you because no one knows what you can do because you are not. And it's like, why do I feel this hesitation that if I have this feeling about a cultural moment, why am I suppressing that? Why am I ignoring that? And I often say that shopping is a way that I hone my intuition, which people are like, okay, you're literally just excusing <laughs> like your shopping addiction yeah. and your like absolute commitment to late capitalism, but like fashion's how I express myself. Mm -hmm. And so in developing your personal style and your taste and how you curate things, I think the, the curation economy has become another very important thing in culture where it's like, okay, well, if, I guess if everybody can just talk about anything they want, then at least you should be able to talk about something from a distinct point of view. Mm -hmm. And I've been very interested in kind of the difference between what, no one really refers to it as this anymore, I feel like, but like highbrow culture and lowbrow culture, yeah. which is even why my podcast tagline is deep conversations about superficial things, because I feel like people want me to be superficial. My industry wanted me to be superficial and it's easy where we could just talk about what shoes we're wearing. And yeah. I used to be a lot more vulnerable online, which I saw a post someone said recently where it was like, don't be vulnerable online. It's a trap. And I'm like, Oh my God, I totally fell for it. Really? It, it kind of is. And just seeing how being vulnerable online never actually made me feel better about anything. But it's like, I would say something that was super, I was super proud of myself for being strong or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then someone would be like, your eyeshadow looks amazing. <laughs> I'd be like, yeah. well, thank, I mean, thank you, first of all. I yeah. mean, the makeup does look good today. But I think when you don't receive external validation from anything other than the superficial, mm -hmm. as I started to come into myself and be more me and be unapologetic for being me, this depth it's not just there within me the same way that I'm expressive and enthusiastic 
and that's how I frame it rather than vapid and superficial because I've never felt superficial. Right. I've just felt like I like to say Adelia's girl in a Hollister world. <laughs> um, but yeah, but the depth is like just as much there right. as any other part of me. And so when people are like, huh, what are you trying to do or say? It then makes me feel like, geez, I guess I have a role to play in society and maybe I shouldn't challenge the status quo and other people's perceptions of me and this and that. But at the same time, that doesn't sound very fun or appealing to me. And so finding my own place to call home, like in the cultural space, it's an ongoing thing. Mm -hmm. But even just like sitting here with you right now, having this conversation, you have seen me and I have seen you talk about superficial things yeah. through the lens of I guess an academic setting mm -hmm. and I don't come from academia and I don't consider myself someone who is more concerned with the logic right. of why something is culturally relevant than just feeling it in my bones right. and being like this is it and I think that sense of intuition is what sets apart Everyone who says that ballet core is coming back for the third year in a row um, versus the people who wear something. I mean, I guess it's the, the difference between actually there's a great lyric that sums this up by Britney Spears. There's only two types of people in the world, the ones that entertain and the ones that observe. What, what song did she say that in? Circus. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I remember I remember when that track came out, that era. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's true, but um, like, I mean, culture is basically, uh, I'm not going to say that it's all aesthetics, but like what we're talking about is basically just aesthetics and aesthetics is a philosophical topic that people have been talking about since forever. Mm -hmm. um, I studied aesthetics kind of, um, and I mean, it's just as superficial as you want it to be. Uh, I think that the people who work in fashion, I, I don't know. Do you listen to Nymphed alumni? Mm-hmm. Love those girls. I really appreciate their ability to pretty much everything that they talk about. Mm -hmm. I'm like, it's, it's something that I have observed and never thought about. But when, when they reference it, I'm like, oh yeah, you're so right. This has been happening. Mm -hmm. It is a trend that I have been exposed to that truly no one else is talking about yet mm -hmm. and I appreciate that so much and that feels like it's not trend forecasting it's just like trend observing but I appreciate their ability to be the first ones that I see at least who are talking about it that is definitely something that I've noticed too my favorite episode of theirs was called fashion intellectualism when did that come out it was from the end of September and the things that they talk about, it's kind of crazy because that's what happens in my brain. Like spiritual <laughs> bimboism. Like yeah. I've literally, beauty pseudoscience. Like I've literally thought about these things. And a lesson for me this year in breaking out of that creative silo, because it's like that's that's even a podcast of three people. And so you have people's energy and ideas to feed off of yeah. and to share and to create this collective 
presentation, you know, the end result being the podcast episode of what little figments of an idea were floating around in your brain. And so for me, I'm like, I definitely want to explore that now because that's where I've been stopping. I'm thinking of something random in my brain and being like, wow, if I just get on the microphone and talk about this, no one's going to know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And I'm a big astrology girl. My astrology supports this, but I've often felt as though I feel too far ahead of the curve for the normies. Yeah. And then when I'm adjacent to ahead of the curve people, they don't have a cultural concept. Yeah. Or they think deeply about just a different aspect. And maybe I am more focused on the aesthetics because I'm a woman, because I worked in the fashion industry, Mm -hmm. because of how I look. And so... Yeah, that's something that I am very excited to explore in that I want to get some of my, it's so funny, I even hesitate to call it research, <laughs> but it's like, that's always what I'm doing. Yes, I'm, exactly. I'm sitting and I'm reading and I'm thinking and I'm coming to conclusions and some of the stuff is so random, but then, yeah, when you see a podcast or something come out that represents I feel like I have to see things out in the world in order for me to believe them. Mm. And that's always, it's like my creativity and my intuition have been at odds where it's like, I can believe in myself, but why not about something creative? Why not about having that confidence behind my cultural idea? Mm -hmm. I can have the confidence behind the outfit that I'm physically wearing but when it comes to intellectualizing it and having it take on a more academic or I don't even want to say formal shape but just something where you actually show people you're smart I mean I call it the L. Woods syndrome right Mm -hmm. like she got into the college because of the admissions video that she sent in where she's floating around in her pool right yeah But at the end of the day, she was actually smart. And that made some people really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. I think that that's a great empowerment story. (laughs) And, and, you know, female solidarity and truly being yourself and staying true to yourself to get where you want in this life. I think that's an absolutely beautiful story. But also I think that like Romeo and Michelle's high school reunion is also a beautiful story. So, Mm -hmm. I agree. I actually have never seen Romeo and Michelle's high school reunion, but I hear it referenced a lot. Um, Yeah, it takes a lot of confidence to, especially with what we're talking about, which is like not necessarily trend forecasting, but like, hey, this is what I've seen. um, And I'm like going to maybe go out on a limb or I'm going to like try to attempt to be one of the first people who is like giving it a name or like pointing it out. Um, I mean, it's risking being wrong a lot it's risking uh people not knowing what you're talking about (laughs) Mm -hmm. um there is a risk to that uh and I I don't really know why everyone wants to be a cultural or like a trend forecaster do you think that it's just because they want to be right (laughs) Ooh, that's a good point I think people love being right Mm -hmm. I think that social media platforms are designed to promote inflammatory opinions because those get people engaging even if it's just arguing 
And so again, I have this back and forth where it's like my fashion historian hat on. Like for example, there was this trend where you would come into the frame with different outfits and it looked like you were sitting down to pose for a yearbook picture. Mm -hmm. And it's like yearbook in 2001. But it's like the song that you're playing in the background came out in 2004. (laughs) Therefore, it could not have been picture day in 2001. And also I had a picture day in 2001 and you weren't even there. So it's like (laughs) on one hand, that is annoying when there's um, historical inaccuracies. However, where it's it's annoying on both sides <laughs> it's just yeah, from a different yeah, yeah. angle <laughs> not that one side's annoying and one's not they're both annoying one the side of historical inaccuracy is annoying but then the other thing that's annoying is the subjectivity of the internet where let's say you have school picture day 2001 and let's say there is a song from 2001 okay mm-hmm. we're right about that but then someone will be like we didn't have that yeah i didn't do that wait we didn't have that that laser print background. Mm-hmm. What are you talking about? My school had that in 1999. And it's like, we're not talking about you and your school. Yeah, no. Like <laughs> the, the, just because some kind of subjective truth is stated does not mean it's the objective truth and doesn't mean that you have to take it personally. And then, okay, the, the example on Twitter that you see all the time is like the, oh, I love pancakes. Oh, so you hate waffles. Right, right, right. I, we're not talking about waffles. Exactly. It's, it, it feeds into what we were talking about before, where it's like, we aren't talking about you. We're talking about like a ref, we're talking about reference and we're talking about like vibes, memories of vibes that some of us don't even have. Like mm-hmm. it, it exists in a, in a, it exists as a separate thing now. It it ex- exists as like a concept or like a vibe or a nostalgic feeling. We are not trying to go back to the year 2000. <laughs> no, I'm definitely not. I think that's a common misconception because I've interviewed a lot of nostalgic content creators mm-hmm. and these people who have a million followers on TikTok because they make videos about yeah, 2006 or whatever. And the thing is, I don't want to go back and really no one that I've talked to has wanted to go back either. Mm -hmm. Even I have a friend who has a whole brand around now stalgic Y2K stuff. She was born in 2000. It's like Charlie XCX. I just want to go back to 1999. She was like four or something. Literally (laughs) take a ride through my old neighborhood in your car seat, in your parents' minivan like like it's not literal I feel like mm -hmm. we all know this by now you know obviously um I don't know are you nostalgic for the 90s for your 90s I mean I don't ever want to go back I don't wish things could happen differently and also I'm not old enough where I am like oh things were better back in my day yeah which I have seen And that's just kind of like commonly with older people. And I think that what is also tricky is that when you become a parent and you say, oh, I want a better world for my kids. And then your kids grow up and then you're like, oh, shit, the world is actually not better for them. Or like they forget how it was different, a different time Mm. than it is now. The world is truly a different place than 30 years ago. And so when parents look at their kids and they're like, Hmm, my kid can't buy a house or my kid isn't this. And it's like not anything wrong with what I did. It's the fact that we have these 
broken systems that like those cracks have just widened and um so I don't look back to the 90s being like wow it was so much simpler then mm. it was you were a child it was because <laughs> I was a kid I could have been a kid at any time and it would have been simpler yeah um I feel like now kids these days are like uh th- like they've really definitely been fed this narrative which may or may not be true I don't know because I can't attest to it I've only lived in the current age that like everything is so hard for us now and like the economy I mean your generation could have very easily fell into this too everything's like everything's getting way harder and we're hearing this from other people so we're like using that as an excuse of why our lives are so bad (laughs) yeah we can also commiserate with each other much easier now that we have the internet and I maybe a year ago gave a presentation to a high school class, a media class at a technical school. And we were talking all about podcasting and the teacher is a family friend. And he said to me, thank you so much for talking to these kids. You know, he has kids that are in high school now and expressed that kind of frustration that the parental generation, whatever it is, Gen X, millennial, whatever, the frustrations that the parental generation has with like, oh man, like these kids in high school have free Adobe suite, free. Like, are you kidding me? If that were me, I would be absolutely milking the school's resources for everything it's worth. But they're high schoolers. They're disinterested. Mm -hmm. They're more interested in the football game than they are in the fact that they could be doing really interesting creative work or that they have the freedom to explore in a way that it's going to be a lot harder when they have financial or whatever kind of pressures as they get older. But I'm like, listen, I said to the teacher, I'm like, listen, I know you've been a teenager. I've been a teenager too, but you will never be a teenager now. You will never understand and neither will I and we're not meant to, Mm -hmm. but it does help to have compassion and like try to think about what I don't really feed into the generational wars of like man if you have a center part if you have a side part if you wear skinny jeans like that's all just stupid stuff that's made up to again get people all riled up about something it's rage bait yeah and for me I don't find that very interesting but um but it still is helpful to look at, you know, when I talk about generations, it's just through trying to address a collective of people. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'll never know what it's like. I'm not supposed to, but the best that I can do is try to understand different perspectives. I don't consider myself particularly diplomatic. <laughs> like I was saying, I'm an Aries. Like we're yeah. not, we're not known for for peacemaking but yeah everybody is going to interpret things a different way so even as like if we look back to the 2010s wasn't that long ago mm-hmm. we were both there maybe we even both listened to Lana Del Rey but you're gonna have a different experience based on where you lived and how old you were and exactly. what your upbringing was like and even what side of Tumblr you were on <laughs> seriously yeah truly I mean, okay, I guess we'll leave off on this question, which, like, was the crux of um, 
like what I know that you do your research on and what I'm interested in and just to get my own clarity of what is going on because I honestly can't wrap my mind around it. And again, what I was talking about earlier, I can't tell what is my own bias based on what I'm exposed to on the internet and what is actually real. But Mm -hmm. do you think that there is like a hyper acceleration of trends and culture since the dawn of the internet? Do you think that it's speeding up? (laughs) Yeah, I do. And I'm also very interested in hyper reality and, the fact is like nothing's real. Like everything is real because it's what you're seeing either in person on the streets of New York or on the internet due to your algorithm. Whatever you see, whatever you consume, that shapes your reality in that it affects what you see. Therefore, it affects what you think about. Therefore, it affects what you talk about. Therefore, it affects who you're hanging out with, whether virtually or physically, because you want to be around like-minded people who you're all talking about the same thing. I want somebody who's going to understand the cheetah print skirt debacle. Yeah. And I feel out of place to an extent. Granted, maybe I'm not going to talk to my grandmother about that. But like to an extent, I am going to place myself, put myself on whatever side of TikTok I mm-hmm. want to be on. And I used to be on TikTok a lot more. But now that I'm not, I think it's very interesting to still have a hyper online perspective. Whereas now I see it's been very interesting, kind of like the push and pull of how tethered I've been to particular platforms. So when you're really on Instagram and you get an idea of Instagram culture, but then I had deleted my Twitter years ago, but I got it about, again about two years ago. Twitter had a big resurgence. Yes. I've been on Twitter since 09. Yeah. I <laughs> yeah. I, I think I first had it in 09 and yeah. then I had it until maybe 2012 or so. And I was like, hmm, I feel like I'm not doing this right. But like I was and now I look back and think, wow, I could have done really well for myself on Twitter because now I understand how I would have had to utilize the platform then. But Mm. it's like, that's not how social media works. You have to be on the platform when it catches fire. And yeah, so then when you're on TikTok, it's like, okay, right. Now I can have almost a half a million likes on my TikTok. But that's because I was in the right place at the right time. And so when you back away from that and you're like, okay, now what does post-pandemic Instagram look like? What is reality shaped like there? And then with Twitter too, how does the information go from TikTok to Instagram? How does it go from TikTok to Twitter? How does it go from TikTok to Reddit to Twitter? And you start to see the big tech companies and all the social media platforms as like these interconnected webs. Oh, totally. And trying to figure out if you are quote doing it right or if you quote know what's happening it feels like this game this computer game from the 90s that no one actually knew how to play I still don't know how to play it it's called Minesweeper oh yeah where it's like there are all those gray blocks and you just click a random one and then it's a bomb and you're dead and you're like Wait, uh, I didn't even know what I was supposed to do. I I just clicked a random one. I didn't mean to lose the game. That's what it feels like to try to be like, am I on the right side of TikTok? Am I 
ahead of the curve, so to speak. Should I be posting on Instagram or, or TikTok or like, should I be posting at a certain kind of day? Should I be making different kinds of content for each kind of platform? Yeah. Where's the money at? Should I be on YouTube? That's a big one when like all the TikTokers are trying to get on YouTube because it's seen as a more stable, um, form of income (laughs) which is insane which is completely (laughs) insane to say oh yes I entrust this whatever how much ever billions of dollars YouTube is worth company and I need to get 10 million views on my video to get I have no idea but like Mm -hmm. let's just say ten thousand dollars like maybe ten thousand dollars sounds like a lot of money but when you're like a 15 year old that is a lot of money whereas now I cannot sustain my life on $10,000. And so to know that I am always at the mercy of these platforms, that was a really big lesson that I had to learn and getting more involved in Web3 and progressively decentralized social and things like that. Mm -hmm. That is what finally got me over being so consumed by social media because in the 2010s, Girlboss era... I had a fitness side platform or a fitness platform that was my side hustle. And I kept seeing all these people around me start to become influencers Mm -hmm. and capital I influencers, not mega, not all of them mega, mega, but like you start to see these people really come up. They were trying, they were influencer 1.0 era like the golden era of instagram i remember oh like to me instagram or influencer 1.0 was youtube mm. i was watching a lot of beauty gurus back then but like now there's a whole other brand of influencers who aren't even necessarily beauty like mm-hmm. there's a whole like lifestyle people but i like back then it was they were all firmly beauty bloggers mm-hmm. um yeah, and then we saw the shift onto Instagram, and then they all went on TikTok. And it's funny that now, like, YouTube stars back in the days, everyone was like, this is such a horrible way to get your income. What happens when your views stop coming in? Um, and now, whenever there's a new platform, people are trying to get on the old ones because those are seen as more, like, tried and true, and those are more trusted. <laughs> mm, yeah, When I say like influencer 1.0 era of Instagram, I mean like when you still got easy engagement and a lot of likes on stuff before they harshly, I guess, pivoted an algorithm, which can you even really say what that meant when it's all black box and you Mm. can't see what's inside anyway, um, to being like, oh no, they're just launching all of these features that are clones of Snapchat or Mm. clones of this or that. Do you think that the culture has now, the the paintball has now been splattered? There's no more uh, monoculture. There's no dominant trends that are happening. Or I guess my perspective is that once something has become what we think of as a dominant trend, it's dead. (laughs) Hmm. Yeah. You know what? Status and Culture is a very interesting book that dives into this more. Oh, actually, my friend took it, but we had it on the shelf. Yeah, it's very interesting. And I think a lot about that in that, like, even the way that nostalgia is used as a misnomer a lot. I feel like 
culture has become this word that now suddenly means everything. It can mean (laughs) aesthetics. It can mean politics. It can mean activism. It can mean a million different things. And so with culture, it's like, hmm, what, like, what does that even mean to you? It's almost like culture, the word in and of itself can have multiple meanings and that the paintball has splattered and it's like there's no more white space anymore and every single article that's coming out is talking about culture but in the wrong way Mm -hmm. so to speak where it's like a cultural statement will be made about something and a motivation will be provided as proof of concept of this article existing like let me think of an example not of something real let me just think of something random that would be a clickbait title or whatever okay young people only using flip phones now so then an article will come out and say that Mm -hmm. so then one article will be like yeah young people are using flip phones because they are they're worried about data surveillance and privacy yeah And then another one will come out and be like, yes, flip phones. They like it because there's going to be a resurgence in analog technology. And people liked when products were made with higher quality back in the day. Meanwhile, they're like buying stuff off of Shein, whatever. You know what I mean? So it's like all these points will be presented. And it's like, no, they were actually, if you went and talked to those kids in New York who did that, it was because they just wanted to have fun with their friends. That's literally it. That's what young people do. They have fun with their friends and they don't really think about it that much. Whereas when you're an adult, it's like, you're trying to make sense. You're trying to reconcile your expectations with reality constantly. And guess what? A lot of the times reality does not live up to your expectations. So you look for these meanings. And then especially in the age that we live in now where everything is rage bait, everything is clickbait, everything is SEO strategized where it's like, we just want eyeballs. We just want clicks. There's not, I'm not saying that media inherently had integrity before the internet but there's just this loss of like a cohesive stance that you know quote culture as a whole writers now take Mm -hmm. it feels like yeah I lean more towards the fact that like nothing just like nothing makes sense anymore or nothing makes sense period and there's a whole lot less continuity than people are trying to create with all this like ad hoc um like see the zoomers they're they're like this and that's why they're doing all of these things and they're lazy and that's why they're doing x y and z and trying to create sense and meaning and and like a a a linear trajectory through all of the things that are happening in quote-unquote culture or trends or like this generation is this way versus the other generation is like that it all just kind of makes my head spin to the point where I'm like I don't even think that any of this is happening I don't know (laughs) right I have a very actually I was I was talking to Ruby on my show about this where he's like that's a very like Buddhist internet (laughs) mindset where I'm like 
everything is real and nothing is real Mm -hmm. and everything matters and nothing matters. And we can try to make meaning of things, but that's just because we're like flecks of dust and we try to make meaning of things while we are in a physical form on this earth. We have to make meaning out of things and even just like draw, um, relationships of causality that's mm-hmm. literally how we make sense of the world which is very humean if, if you've ever read david hume mm. um of like there is no cause and effect there's just patterns that seemingly always happen in conjunction with each other and because we see them happening then we make them like necessary even mm-hmm. though they aren't necessary causal effects of each other right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. very interesting it always broke my brain whenever i read david hume but it's something that I think really shapes how people look at anything in the world. They need to make sense of it. They, it, there needs to be like a linear narrative or like a trajectory that makes sense. Um, and also people like being right. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. No one loves being right more than people on the internet. So true. <laughs> I mean, Yeah. Let the people know where they can find you, your socials, your podcast, your Substack. What's it all at? Amazing. So you can find me at Nicole Tremaglio on all platforms and NicoleTremaglio.com. My Substack is Nostalgia.substack.com. The podcast is called Nostalgia. You can watch it on YouTube or Spotify and then listen to it wherever you want. And yeah, if there's, I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, then I'm sure you're an interesting person that thinks a lot about these things that we're thinking about. So uh, you're also always welcome to reach out to me. And I think something that's so fun about having a platform that's rooted in culture and in nostalgia is the fact that when you look back at something, it's like so much meaning has already been made of it. Mm-hmm. And we come to clearer conclusions about things uh, as opposed to speculating the way that we do now. So I just always love having these conversations with people. So you you always know where to find me. Yeah, yeah. They definitely make my head spin a little bit less when I get to actually talk to someone who thinks about these things in maybe not a more objective way, but like with a little bit more clarity. Because I'm purely just going in through my own perspective and I have no idea... Um, it's kind of the same thing with like TikTok, how when you talk to someone that you're like, oh, like you saw that thing on TikTok and they're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm like, okay, maybe this is just me. Like it's my own echo chamber that I'm creating for myself. How often do you release episodes just whenever you feel like it? Well, my podcast comes out once a week and I'm very excited. I was very inspired by the symposium that we did recently Mm -hmm. in that I love presenting and public speaking so I'm like I would love to do I've done solo episodes in the past but what I'm really looking forward to doing is presenting this research as a happy medium between a YouTube deep dive and a TikTok PowerPoint night nice. so think of like a solo episode but with a PowerPoint visual accompaniment so then the ideas in my head can be articulated but then at least I learn a little bit easier visually and it can be expressed in that way. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me.